We're in, uh, we're in John 15, and last week we looked at verses 1 through 5. Um, I just want to remind you of what's going on. And, and if you come every week, you're like, oh, I could tell everyone. You don't have to tell them, Bob. But just, just so that everyone's on the same page, Jesus has just had the Last Supper. He has just told them he's going to die. He has just uh, talked to Judas. Judas has left. He's just told Peter that Peter is going to deny him three times. Um, he's, he's, just been t- he's been laying all this stuff out for them, and he just starts teaching them, now, here's how you're going to live without me. Here's how you're going to live when I'm gone. And his point is because I'm not really going to be gone. I'm going to live inside of you. I'm going to be a part of your being and live with you. And so he's teaching them this as he is knowing what's coming. And then at the end of chapter 14, he said, all right, let's go. They leave the, 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 the place of the Last Supper, and they start to walk. And, and, and I was looking at a map, and I mean, it doesn't really help you that, but it just they probably have walked out of the city of Jerusalem, and now they're walking across what is called the Kidron Valley, heading towards the Mount, Olive, Mount of Olives. It's the Mount of Olives because there's a bazillion olive trees there. In that mount is an area called the, the Gethsemane. You, you'll hear it as the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, but it was called the Gethsemane. And just so you, know, so you know, that Gethsemane in the Greek, that word is that big tall stone that they would set on top of olives to crush them and get the olive out, get the olive juice, olive oil juice. Who drinks olive juice? Get the olive oil out of those olives, and that stone would be this huge stone, and they'd leave it on there, and it would just slowly crush them to pulp. And it had a little circle around it and a little spout, and that olive oil would run out, and they would catch it, and then they would sell it. And that stone is called the Gethsemane stone, or this, it, they just call it the Gethsemane. It's the crusher. And Jesus is heading to the Mount of Olives, to the Gethsemane where they crush the olives. And he is going to experience a crushing. That's what he's... Now, he knows that's coming. He knows he's going to be crushed. And then he knows he's going to die. And he's walking with the disciples and he's teaching them. I mean, we can't... I can't emphasize enough how pivotal, how important this teaching is in these passages. Because this... Jesus knows exactly what's coming, and he's imparting to them wisdom to live, and he's imparting that through John to us so that we, we can be like, in a sense, the 13th disciple. We can, and we talked about this last week, we put ourselves in their shoes and we walk with them, right? And so here they go. They're walking. Jesus is teaching, and this is what he says. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So he's got them thinking about their connection of God in in verses 1 through 5 about this idea of bearing fruit. And he's going to expand this thinking now in these verses. Uh, And he's telling them, if you don't get this, 
you're going to fall apart. You're going to decay. You're going to wither like a branch that has been disconnected from the trunk. But if you get this, there will be fruitful, transformative growth. This is what I'm promising you. This is the life Jesus has been talking about all along. Now, I got to talk about that. I know we talk about it a lot. In the Greek, two words for life, zoe, bios. Bios is physical life, breathing, eating, drinking, you know, like my grandkids would love to say, burping. Yes, burping. It's just physical life, the body functioning, just like any animal. Zoe is a word that means a life with purpose and a life with meaning, a life that you, you can get up in the morning for, a life that you love to be a part of, a life that accomplishes something on this earth. And Jesus then often connects it, so they understand that, connects the word eternal, zoe. So he says, so I just want you to understand, I'm not just talking about, like, say you love your job and you feel like you have meaning. Maybe you create something with your hands, and when it's created, you feel good about it. He says, I'm not talking about that kind of meaning. I'm talking about the meaning that creates something that lasts forever. I'm talking about the kind of meaning where you go and maybe you work with someone and you love on someone and, and, and you pray for someone and their life changes forever. See, it's not just a here and now kind of a satisfaction, kind of a good feeling. It's eternal meaning and purpose for here and throughout the future. And so this is that life he's been talking about, and he's telling us this is how it works. So I want you to see, first point, growth is inevitable, and it's organic. When he says, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. So he says he's going to use this botanical metaphor. He's going to use something that they see. There probably, as they go through the Kidron Valley, there are wine. Uh, there is winemaking there. There are grapevines in the Kidron Valley. And so they're seeing that as they go. And he just says, hey, hey look, see, see that branch? Look at that one. Nothing, no leaves, no fruit. What do you think the gardener's going to do with that branch? It's got to go. It's got to go. So he uses this to illustrate biological growth, the growth, you know, that type of thing, and then applies it to our spiritual growth. In a plant or a tree, the relationship between the trunk and the branches is key. The trunk sends nutrients to the branches. It's nourishment. It is life. And the natural consequence of that happening, the trunk, building into the branch, is fruit. That's the natural consequences. That should be the natural consequence in our lives as Christians. It should be fruit. Scripture talks about the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those things are supposed to be coming out of us. If the branch stays connected, then there's fruit. And if the branch does not stay connected, there is no fruit. And this is the nature. This gets to the very heart of the Christian message. It is not simply inspiration. The Christian message is not simply information about God. The Christian message is not just good advice. It is those three things, but that's the small part. The Christian message is the God who enters our life and creates a fruit-bearing life in us, flowing out 
and affecting others. Jesus is simply saying here, the natural consequence of a vital connection with God is life itself. Zoe life. If you notice in verse 6, if this branch is not connected, it says, um, if you do not remain in me, then you are like a branch. It's thrown away and withers. If you're not connected, that branch gets thrown away. It's, it's, it's worthless. Withering is the natural consequence of being disconnected from the source of life. It's the natural consequence of being disconnected from the source of life. In a family, if there's a breach of trust, there will be a withering. In a relationship, maybe a close friend, if you have a close friend who betrays you, right, or you betray a close friend, you may find that that friend now creates a distance from you. There's a withering there. And it's not necessarily the idea of punishing. Distance is the natural consequence of betrayal. That's what happens. When you disconnect from the source of life, the Zoe life that Jesus talks about, there are natural consequences that happen in a person's life. What I love sometimes in, 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 in reading a lot or listening to music and different things like that is you find people who stumble upon that kind of thing. You know, they may, they're not Christians necessarily, but they, they suddenly begin to see what the truth is in these matters. Oscar Wilde is a famous writer. And uh, looking back on his life, right towards the end of his life, he wrote this. I grew careless with the lives of others. I took pleasure wherever it pleased me, and I just moved on. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber has some, one has someday to cry aloud from the housetops. I ceased to be lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul, and I did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me, and I ended up in horrible disgrace. What is he saying there? He's saying, look, I looked for life, and I thought I was finding it, and then I realized it had cap- I was its captive. I looked for life. I went, you know, I looked, <laughs> looking for love in all the wrong places. He says, I looked for it. I've worked hard for it. Me, me, me. It was all about me. And he says, and now, and he, and he, this is not late in his life in the sense of he's in his 70s. This is a, he's in his late 30s now. And he just goes, it owns me. And there is no pleasure. There is only disgrace and shame. If we remain connected, we will grow and bear fruit. That's the promise of the Christian life. Now, I know you go to any, any bookstore. You know what bookstores are, right? Okay, just making sure things are different nowadays. You'll find lots of books. You can get them online too. So, You'll find lots of books on self-improvement. Here's some of the ones that are the top sellers this, at this point in time. One is called Let Your Life Speak. And it's the idea of finding out what your life is asking you to do. Another is called Designing. And I'm not mocking. Wait, I just want to make sure. I, I'm not mocking because these things all have good, some good ideas. Another is called, called Designing Your Life. It's the idea of learning to imagine all your possible futures and then picking the one that you like. One is called Acts of Achievers, the four simple self-help habits that will change your life and help you create success faster. 
One is called The Life-Changing Art of Tidying Up. Guess who wrote that? Maria Kondo, right? Does this bring you joy? You know, no. Trash, right? Right? I, dude, I just mocked. I, I didn't mean to mock. I, I didn't mean to mock because I've watched, I've watched it some. And she has good ideas, right? But generally speaking, all those kinds of books, what are they? They're about techniques for forming better habits and imagining a better self, improving yourself. The idea behind all of this is that we have in ourselves the power, the capacity to make our lives fuller and richer and more self-satisfied if we can just change our mindset and kind of rework our thinking, kind of like rewire our brain. And then we can be more successful, and this is a common theme, and then we can have the life we deserve to have. Can I tell you something? I do not want the life I deserve to have. I don't want that life. I know me. The life I deserve to have is hell. It's just hell on earth is the life I deserve to have, right? I can look back at my life, and I always want to say, especially before as a Christian, but not always before as a Christian, and I can see a long list of people that I've hurt and done terrible things to. I don't want the life I deserve. I want something different. I need something different. And self-help techniques are not going to change my heart or my soul. They're not going to do it. That's what I need. And they can have good ideas, but they cannot get you to where God says, this is what you were made for. In Christianity, growth does not come by a technique where you engineer growth or you somehow tap into and unlock something that is within you and just waiting to come out. True growth comes from staying connected to the source of life, coming from the trunk. Then change is not merely cosmetic. It is deep, sustained, fruit-bearing change. But it takes time. It's a process. We talk about this a lot. We have to understand that. There's a process in this. You can't short-circuit it. You know, if, if you, I've, always, I've always liked the idea of having in our yard an apple tree. You know, it's just kind of this sort of romantic idea of being able to climb up in the tree and pluck a fresh apple and sit in the, sit in the tree and eat the apple and, like, read a book or something. It just kind of appeals to me. And, you know, the problem is, the reason it doesn't happen is because that's a lot of work, right? Right? Because one thing you can do, though, is you can just go to Wayfair and you can buy it. You just buy it. It's not a real tree. And it, it's not, it doesn't have real apples on it. And I can't sit in the, in the limbs. But I could just go stick that in my front yard and go, ah, oh, there we go. I got my apple tree, right? But that won't work, right? We understand that. That's just stupid. You do understand that, right? That's okay. Just want to make sure. Because, because, this is the shortcut. This is just like a, a, a cosmetic thing rather than having to plant and care and nurture a tree so that the tree grows and bears apples. This is the promise of growth that is made to us. It will not be cosmetic. He says, remain in him and you will grow. The branch does not have the power to make itself grow. It must remain, uh, remain attached and then we have this, this glorious process 
of God and, and, and working and Jesus and the Holy Spirit then taking and applying to our lives and we change. So growth is inevitable and it's organic. But let's talk about how this, how this happens. How does this growth happen? Jesus says, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. All right, so this is the key then. It seems that the key is remaining. It's not me struggling and stressing and working so hard. It's me deciding I'm going to lean back in the loving arms of a beautiful father. Breathe deep and know that he is good. It's a love like no other. And then I remain. Now, remaining in the Greek here, it's very key. It's not a one-time event. It points to a process, an ongoing process that happens through the course of a person's life. So there's that process again. It's a continuous activity, like breathing. Constantly, we have to breathe in and breathe out. I don't know about you, but do you, when somebody says breathe in, do you go, huh, and breathe out, huh, like I'm obeying the words or something. Anyways, in, out, constant process, constant process. And so there seems to be two things here that seem to be key in this verse. The first one is listening. The second one is speaking. So listening is this idea of remain in me and my words remain in you. Okay, so there's a clue for us. We listen because, because words are the currency of relationship, right? This is how we know each other. You can say that I know, you know, you could, you could, maybe some famous person, an athlete or a movie star, I know what you do. You went online, you looked up, you found out a whole bunch of facts about that person. But do you know that person? No, you don't know that person. How do we know a person? It's not just information. It's words. We talk. We spend time. We eat together. We do things together. And you begin to know a person. The implication of this, the Bible, is the Word of God. It's not just simply information about God. It's the currency for a relationship. Think of it that way sometime. Think of the Bible as being this. Maybe you get your Bible. Maybe you pull it up on your phone. This is the currency of relationship. This is what makes relationship happen. This is how I get to know Jesus. This is how it happens. In the Bible, we see how God dealt with people over the years. We see that the whole book is pointing forward or looking. The whole book is concentrated on Jesus. He's the message. We see what God values. We see what his heart is. Right? We talk about this in our, in our membership class. We talk about our values. One of the things is what, 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 what matters to God. What does God value? We get that from Scripture. We see the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sons. What does all of those tell us? God values people. People. More than anything else, it's all about people. So that whenever we make fun, whenever we look down on others, Whenever we say negative things about other people, what are we doing? We're devaluing them. We are breaking the heart of God. Because that's his heart, his people. So that we make snide remarks about someone, when we gossip about someone, 
and I say we because I mean me too, when we get involved in things like that, we are breaking the heart of God because we are devaluing people and God says, this is what's most important to me. And when we devalue people and we break the heart of God, it begins to wither our relationship with him. So if you want to grow, you need to know him. And the chief way to do that is through his words in the Bible. Now, there are other ways. And, I, you know, there's, you can read books that are good for that. You can listen to good music. I'm all for those things. But the word of God is the key. In any relationship, there needs to be speaking. In any relationship, there needs to be listening. Listening and speaking both work together. If someone says, I don't, I want to know God, but I don't really, there's, I don't like the Bible. Or there's some parts I want to avoid. There's some parts that are hard, so I just skip them. Or there's some parts I don't want to have to listen to. What are, what are they saying? It's like a married couple saying, we want a thriving marriage, but we don't want to listen to each other. It's just not going to happen. It's impossible. It's impossible. We can't have growth without time in the word. We can't abide unless we abide in the word, and then it abides in us. And then speaking. Abiding requires speaking. So in verse 7, we see here's another verse about prayer. Here's another one of those verses that people look at first and go, wait, what? What is this saying here? Right? Whatever I wish? <laughs> yes, yes. Right? Uh, I, I played a little bit of basketball for a while. And, and I really, really wanted to be able to dunk a basketball. I got to the point where I could dump a volleyball, but my hands are small. I could never hold the basketball to be able to dunk it. And I remember I had a friend who said, when I get to heaven, I'm going to dunk like crazy. And I was like, yeah, but I'd like to do it now. I'd like to do it now, God. I don't want to have any kind of false help like wings, something like that. So anything I want, I prayed like crazy that I would win the, this latest um, $1 billion lotto. Man, I promised God 25% of it. I didn't buy any tickets. That way, if I won, I knew it was God, right? I would know this is absolutely God's will because I didn't buy a ticket. I didn't win, just in case you're wondering. I know the winner hasn't come out yet, I don't think, which I would, I would not tell you guys. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> if I won the lottery, I'd just say, just want you to know I'm retiring. See you later. Yeah. No. That's terrible. Okay, so we, I, why am I, my mouth's running and my brain is not functioning. So in verse 7, we see this thing. What, ask whatever I wish more comfortable life, job of my dreams, spouse of my dreams, win the lottery. But see, he's, it's, there's the whole, everything around, it's a context here. He says, when you abide in him and his words abide in you. In other words, you're, you're connected. You're intimately connected. What happens? Your appetites and your desires change. Like in a marriage, oftentimes, you know, two people in, in, in this loving, intimate relationship, it changes them. It changes them. Your wishes change. Your desires change. Your tastes begin to change. Your ideas of joy begin to change. 
your closest friends and family will see it. I can remember one time uh, after I've been, Bev and I have been married for a while, one of my brothers, we were sitting talking, and he says, Robert, when did you become sensitive? Where did that come from? What has happened to you? And I said, Bev, making me sensitive, making me cry in movies, <laughs> right? You change. You can't help it. You change. You change when you're in a deep, intimate relationship. And that's why this is so important for us in our relationship with God, because God is working on us to change. He's working on us to make our wish to be successful, to turn into a wish to be fruitful. He's working on us. He's trying to rewire our desire to be rich into a desire to be content. He's trying to make our hunger for comfort into a joy in serving others. He's trying to make our desire for control into a desire for peace. So sometimes in prayer, God's answer is yes. I've seen that many times. But sometimes it is, you got to wait. I'm still working on you in that area. Get back with me. This is the listening and the speaking, the breathing in and the breathing out that is the process. And what, is, what happens because of that process? This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. We bear fruit. We show others that we are his disciples. We rest in his love. We lean back in the loving arms of a beautiful father. So growth is inevitable and organic. We see how growth happens. Now the outcome of growth. Verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is what Jesus wants for you and for me, joy. This is his goal. It isn't to control you. It isn't to keep you from, from doing some of the things you wish you, you would love to do, but you know you probably shouldn't. It isn't, it isn't to be you know, this, this kill joy. He wants to bring joy into your life. He says, I need you to believe this. This is what he has done and is doing for you. You will rest in his love. Jesus went to the cross for you. He stayed on the cross for you. It was an act of love for you. So he's saying, this is my love. This is my love. And the outcome will be joy in your life. You know, think about this, okay? Here we go. Put yourselves in the situation. You're walking with Jesus. What is he walking towards? The crush. He knows that's coming. The mouth of hell is going to open in front of him. He's going to see it, and he's going to be frightened. He knows that's coming. He knows then comes the arrest, and then he knows he'll be beaten. He knows he'll be spit upon, and then he knows he'll hang on a cross, and he will die, and he knows that. And what is he talking about? Joy. And in the next few chapters, it's going to keep coming up. He's going to keep talking about joy. That, 
That's the kind of joy I want. That's the kind of joy I want in my life. The joy that remains even in the worst of times. The closer he gets to death, the more he talks about joy. This is what makes this kind of joy, true joy, remarkable. It cannot be taken away. The world has no power over this kind of joy. It's the most beautiful in the darkest of times. At the times when most people would think joy is impossible. Hebrews, I love this verse. I tell you guys all the time. In Hebrews, it says, "Who for the joy, Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And that joy was us. We were what he was focused on. And that brought him joy. We get distracted so easily by other things that we think will bring us joy. We have lots of ideas. Now, oftentimes, you know, if you've been a Christian, you know you can't say it that way. You know, nobody goes around and says, if I could win the lottery, well, I'd have joy like nobody else. Oh, no, you're not allowed to say that. So they say, if I win the lottery, boy, it'd be nice, right? I mean, you know, I don't need it, (laughs) right? But we get distracted by other things that really we think will bring us joy. The Bible calls these idols, things things that we look to instead of God. And they actually, they get in the way of our dependence on God. They, They cause us to wither because those idols whisper, you don't need God's sap. You don't need the trunk. And then we start to wither and wonder what's going on. So I just want to, in the last few minutes, I just want to ask you a few questions. This is a self-take-home exam, right? Just between you and God. But I want to encourage you to something. I want to encourage you to, to, to think about this. To come clean in a way maybe that you never have before, looking at yourself. To, maybe to identify something that's trying to ensnare you and keep you from loving God with everything. Something like an idol. And so I would encourage you, at the very beginning of this, I, I, you know, when, when you're working on these things, I've, I've probably done this like four times this week, and each time I'm trying to say to myself, God, would you help me name my idol? Help me see. And unfortunately, there's more that I, I too many, too many he's showing me. Say to yourself, God, what is inhibiting the flow of life in my life? Because ultimately, it is only God through his spirit that can change us. So, first question. Do I feel like I have enough money and possessions right now, or do I feel like I need more? Because part of what an idol does is it tells you, always tells you, you need more. You need more. In idolatry, you always start off thinking, I'm free to go after this, but then you end up being enslaved to it, just like Oscar Wilde was talking about. He said, I thought I was exercising my freedom, and all of a sudden I found out I was a slave. I lost control. I wasn't the captain of my soul. I was enslaved. And these kinds of things can slowly disconnect you from the vine. You know, more is not wrong. It's not wrong. But God wants us to learn contentment. I mentioned this before, going into a doctor's office with a recurring issue that was just very debilitating in my life. And they give you the little thing you fill out. And one of the last things they said was, if nothing can be done to help, can you still be happy? 
And I looked at that and I said, how dare you ask me this? You know, what do you do? And I thought, this is from God, Bob. God is saying, Bob, what if nothing can be fixed here? Can you still be happy? Can you still find joy? That was a real reckoning for me. All right, so do I feel like I have enough? Or do I feel like I need more? Second question, is there a relationship in my life to which I am so attached that I have to have that for my life to be truly meaningful? This is a hard one when you, when you really love someone. This is incredibly difficult. And I don't know if you can ever fully understand, but it is something God wants us to consider. Third, what am I willing to betray? What am I willing to betray my values to obtain if I think I won't get caught? When I was in high school, I cheated on a test. And I got caught. And my excuses were, the teacher's not a good teacher. The subject matter is way too hard. We rush through it way too fast. This doesn't teach anything that's going to really help me in my real life. So what's the point? It's useless information. Teacher's unreasonable. I had good excuses. I felt like they were good. But the bottom line was, I wanted what I had not earned, and I wanted to look better than I truly was. That was the bottom line. What am I willing to betray my values to obtain if I think I won't get caught? Fourth one. What desire is so strong that it can warp my thinking and make me engage in defensiveness, self-justification, denial, and also secrecy? So what desire do I have? You know, one of the fascinating things about reading up on psychology in our day is that it continually circles back and finds out that a lot of the things the Bible says are empirically verified. Paul goes over this over and over about idolatry. He talks about how it's a suppression of the truth. He talks about our thinking becomes futile. He talks about our foolish hearts get darkened. We say we're wise, but we become fools. We exchange the truth for a lie. And then what happens? We wither, we become useless for bearing fruit. So what's the desire or the fear that is so strong in me that it distorts my thinking? If I, uh, Whoops, I forgot one somewhere in here. All right, here's another one. You don't even have to, um, I didn't write it in. This is, this is definitely me. Do I tend to focus on others and their failings rather than God? Do I tend to be really good at looking at others and their failings rather than focusing on God? This can involve comparing and contrasting. The great uh, uh, illustration of this is the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple, right? Pharisee starts praying, and he sees the tax collector, and he goes, oh, that's someone beneath me. God, I thank you that I'm not like him. And I do this, and I do this. As if, as if, this is what's so interesting how we get this way. As if God needs to hear from us what we're doing for him. Like God's going, oh, you give that much? I hadn't noticed. A tenth? My. Right? And so this, this Pharisee starts to, what is he doing? He's contrasting and comparing and making himself feel better by looking down on someone else. 
Any person who happens to believe differently, act differently, look differently, it's easy for us to point these things out and belittle them. And this practice causes us to lose our life-giving connection with God, and we begin to wither. And finally, what desire do I have that sometimes gets in the way of my paying attention to God or fully, firing, fully following God? What's the desire that gets in the way? What is it? What is the thing? It can be very humbling. Can it be work, family, success, achievement, love, money, approval, power, reputation, security, sex, your body, anger? These things can become a desire. They can become an idol that causes us to turn away, and we cannot do that. The Bible never tells us just to turn away from something. It tells us to turn to something. It always, that's inherent in the idea of repenting. That we don't just turn away, we turn to something. I'll give you an example. I think this is a great example because what can happen is if we can turn to something, if we get connected and, and, and that life is flowing and the Spirit is working in our lives, God becomes almost like this beautiful obsession with us. We look for him everywhere. We see him everywhere. It's a cool thing when you begin to, begin to experience that. I, it doesn't always work for me, but I try. I listen uh, sometimes on the radio. You know, I, I was listening last week, and, and I, I, I went to um, this alt-nation radio, alternative music. Because sometimes, I'll, what, are the, what are some of the people who are out there on the cutting edge? And alternative music is not always cutting edge, but it is, tells me what people are thinking, right? And what, what's, what's out there? And I, and I heard this song. It's called Numb Little Bug by, I, don't, I never heard of this woman, M. Bainhold, I think is her name. And all of a sudden, she starts listing. Basically, the song is she's saying, I am incredibly depressed, and I need medication, and I hope that in this medication I'll find some joy. And she talks about, she talks about how you, 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 you know you should be empathetic to someone, but you just don't feel it. You know you should be kind, but it just doesn't work. And you're just hanging on at one point. You know, she says, you're just hanging on by a thread in your life. And I thought, oh, my goodness. I remember in my car, I was driving, and I just said, God, please reach this woman because this is her. She wrote that song. And, and uh, it's, it's a bleak song. I'd encourage you to listen to it. Numb Little Bug is the name of it. It's a bleak song, but when you see the words, it is so revealing in the heart of a person who feels like they have nothing. And God says when we connect, that won't happen to us. When we're in vital, uh, uh, intimate relationship with him, we have something that is an overwhelming, and we see him. We see him in everything. We evaluate our music. We, we see him in movies. We see him in our neighbors. We see him in life. We see him all around us, and we see opportunities. In the book of Genesis, there's a young man named Jacob. He, makes a, he, he meets a young woman named Rachel and tells her father he wants to marry her, and he offers to work for him. His name is Laban, and he does that. A lot of you know this story, right? Remember how long Jacob worked for Rachel? Seven years, right? Okay, that is a beautiful obsession. He's willing to work for her for seven years. Not only that, this is the kicker. This, is, this I think, is, 
in, uh, was that already up there? Hmm, you guys already know. That. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Isn't that cool? This is remarkable. I mean, you think about this. Each day for seven years, Jacob doesn't just show up for work. He shows up with a song in his heart because she's worth it to him. If there's any man here that's willing to work for the woman you love for seven years, you should raise your hand right now. Okay, if your hand is not up, you're not thinking. I just threw you a hanging curveball. It's right across the plate. Knock it out of the park. No one's going to ask you to do it. So just... No one's going to take you up on it. So why does seven years seem like a few days to Jacob? Uh, some of you, some of you, your, your wife is not here. Your girlfriend's not. I'm telling. I'm telling. I'm just going just gonna to rat you out. He had an overwhelming passion for something. Zacchaeus had an overwhelming passion for money. He was an Israelite. And he gave up everything. He gave up his reputation. He gave up his community. He gave up friendships. He gave up honor. He gave up integrity to become a tax collector for the Romans and to get money. And then one day, he meets Jesus. And on that day, he says, okay, I'm done with money. I'm going to pay everybody back that I ever cheated four times the amount that I cheated from them. And then of what's left over, Half of it I'm given to the poor. What enabled him to be freed from his idol? Well, he found the ultimate, overwhelming, positive passion, and his name was Jesus. He suddenly saw Jesus and said, this is not important anymore. It's not important anymore. And I mean, he didn't give all his money away. That's not what that's teaching. What it's teaching us is that he lost his passion for that and found his true passion in Jesus. When we remain in him, when we abide in him, by listening to him and speaking to him, we realize that his goal for us is joy. That's his goal for you, joy. He wants that for you. The key is, where is it? How do we get it? And in this passage, he's telling us, abide in me, speak to me, listen to me. You will find that joy, that meaning in your life. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone could come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Will find it. This goes against everything we're taught in our culture. We're taught, take care of you. Who's going to take care of you? No one else is going to take you. take care of you. You think about you. It's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. Jesus says, look, make it the other way. Flip it around. Make it all about Jesus. And then all this joy is waiting for you because that's where it's found. He's calling us to die to ourselves and find the true life, the true eternal Zoe, the true joy that he has for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this teaching that Jesus, at the end of his life, gave such incredible teaching. And Lord, 
as so many of us here can testify, this, this is how it works. This is where it's at. This is what we find. Father, help us to weed out those things that may sidetrack us, weed out those things that distract us, weed out those things that would cause us to wither and be fruitless. And again, Lord, I pray this week, maybe you'd give us opportunities. Help us to have the eyes to see the people around us, the words to speak, the the actions that we could do to impact people's lives. And we will always give you the praise because you did so much for us, Lord. We bow to you now. We thank you. And it's because of what Jesus has done for us and in his name, amen.